name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We humans are a curious creature. I don't mean curious from the standpoint of being different from others. I mean that we're curious. We we are inquisitive. We want to know. We want to understand. Most creatures in this world simply adapt to their environment. And if the environment changes, they have to change with it or they die. But not us. We inquire. We question. We seek to understand. And in the process, we seek not to be adaptive to our environment, but to adapt our environment to ourselves. It is that basic inquisitiveness that is at the root of almost every innovation and development in human history. Every tool that you pick up, whenever you use something to create or to manipulate or to change something, it's the result of man's insatiable desire to know, to understand. And in the process of knowing and understanding, to be able to control. But you learn very quickly that if you ask the wrong question, you're probably headed down a path that will lead more to misunderstanding and confusion than to clarity of thinking. I used to believe there was no such thing as a dumb question. There were only dumb answers. But I've learned that there are some, if not dumb questions, at least wrong questions. Questions that by their very nature invite a misunderstanding. Case in point, this morning's gospel reading. I'm going to approach that gospel reading this morning from the perspective of Matthew's account. Because Matthew gives us a little bit of contextual background to this encounter between Jesus and the man who asked the wrong question that's that's helpful for us to understand. Jesus had just been in a rather lengthy conversation with a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. To be bluntly honest, they were asking Jesus questions in order to trap him. And if you look at their questions honestly, they were silly questions. They were stupid questions. They were wrong questions. They wanted to make Jesus look foolish. But as he so often did, he turns the tables on them. And as a result, they end up looking pretty silly. In fact, they end up looking pretty childish. Standing somewhere nearby were a group of Pharisees. Now, you have to understand, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both religious leaders in the world of of Jesus' faith. But they didn't like each other. They did not get along. They were diametrically opposed to each other and were constantly in a a political struggle for who would be in control of God's people, Israel. And so when Jesus makes the Sadducees look silly and childish, the Pharisees immediately see this as an opportunity. An opportunity to get Jesus, a very influential teacher, on their side supporting their ideas, supporting their philosophy. And so they send someone to ask him a question. 
a good question, a serious question, a legitimate question, a question that's based on the whole Pharisaic idea of what a relationship with God is all about. Now understand, the Pharisees, who did not necessarily have a very good relationship with Jesus, and therefore we think not very highly of them, they were good men. They were honest men. They were decent men. They were moral men. They were conscientious. They were courteous. They were respectable and respectful. They were also wrong. And their question reflects both their lifestyle as well as their mistakes. They understood that a healthy relationship with God is based on an acceptable level of performance in living according to God's expectations. In other words, live up to the standards that God sets and things are good. Miss the bar and things are not so good. And so the question that the young Pharisee asks seeks to define a basic relationship of a life with God and with others, all based on, as he asks, teacher, what must I do? Where's the bar? Where's the standard of performance? To what level must I rise in order to accomplish and to receive eternal life? What must I do? And instinctively, we think we know the answer. Well, you start by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you put that into practice by loving your neighbor as yourself. We regard that as the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And some people even think of that as the, the basic foundation of the whole Christian faith. Do to others. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Be kind, caring, compassionate, helpful, serving each other in love. In other words, eternal life is God's reward for doing the right thing. But think about that for a minute. Let's probe that answer for a moment. Is it really helping someone when you're simply using them for your own personal advantage? Is it really caring for someone else in their need when you hope to get something out of it? Is promoting your own security, is, is feathering your own eternal nest really an act of compassion? To help implies a loving reason for doing. Using someone for one's own advantage, that tends to imply a different motive, a selfish one. If you contribute to a charity simply so you can get an income tax deduction. What really have you gained? 
using your neighbor for your own advantage. That's really just the first step on what ultimately becomes a very long road that leads to counting the cost. Enter the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story. Here come two men on separate occasions, more than willing, because that was their nature, more than willing to help the poor victim who had fallen to the thieves, more than willing to help him if they had something to gain from it, or at best, if they had nothing to lose. And you can almost see the gears working in their brains as they begin to think. Oh, here's this poor man who's been robbed and beaten and left half dead. I could take my time and my energy to help him and to care for him, but he's probably dead already, or soon will be. And besides, I have another more impressing appointment down the road that I need to get to and I don't dare be late. And then, too, there's the possibility of danger to themselves. Maybe those thieves are still lurking on the other side of that hill over there. And if I stop and wait and help this man, I become victim number two. And then oh, there's also the idea that there's really no real advantage to be gained. I am, after all, a Pharisee. I am, after all, a Levite. I am an obedient servant of God, and I don't really need to do any more. I don't need to rack up any more brownie points with everything to lose and nothing to gain, they pass by on the other side. Have you ever counted what it would cost you to help someone? Have you ever stopped to add up all the time and the energy that you spend in working in the church? or totaled up the amount of dollars that you've contributed to the church or some other charity. The minute you ask yourself, what will I gain if I help? What will I lose if I don't? You're asking the wrong question. Counting the cost is part of our nature. It's, it's built into our DNA because of our sin. It's part of our inherent selfishness. It's also a very subtle way of using someone to my own advantage. God's law, the law that demands true selflessness, condemns us continually for our selfishness. Even the selfishness of caring for someone else or of helping someone in need. And that's precisely Jesus' point. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. Not a thing. Because eternal life is not a reward. It's an inheritance. Saved by grace alone, we have God's promise of security in this life and in eternity 
simply because we were born into the family. Eternal life is not yours by what you do. It's not yours by how much you care. It is simply yours by receiving the promise. Receiving God's grace in Christ. His forgiveness for Jesus' sake. Eternal life is your inheritance because you're a member of the family. All you have to do, all you have to do is be born. Or as Jesus expressed it in a conversation with another Pharisee, all you have to do is be born from above of water and the Spirit. And if you don't get that, Jesus is obviously talking about baptism. There's the beauty. There's the wonder of the gospel. It's not what I do at all. It's what God has done for me in Christ. God's own Son came to offer that ultimate sacrifice, to suffer not only death but the torment of hell, and to have no one care for him in his time of need. But he did it not for his own benefit, but for yours. He knew and he lived in that relationship with his father that gave him the security of knowing his inheritance was secure. His inheritance as his father's son. And in that inheritance he was free to simply serve those who were in need even at the cost of his own life. It is through faith in his death and his resurrection that we have God's promise of that same eternal security. As the Apostle Paul expressed it, through an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. That gospel promise may not change a thing in how you live your life or in what you do, but it changes everything in why you do it. Enter the Samaritan. Like the priest, like the Levite, as the Samaritan makes his way down the road, he has, like them, everything to lose and absolutely nothing to gain. But he never stops to count the cost. He doesn't need to earn anything. He simply sees a need and he fulfills it. In the gospel, Jesus, God gives us the freedom to love and to serve, to care and to help those in need for no personal advantage. Having received God's grace, having been empowered by Christ's Spirit, having the assurance of an eternal security, you are now led by God's Spirit to care selflessly, to serve lovingly, to help without counting the cost. Because Christ has already paid the price for you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all our understanding, keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.